Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Last month, the UK government announced that pregnant people in England would soon be able to have pill-induced abortions at home if they are less than 10 weeks pregnant. Today, we're going to be getting into the ins and outs of pill-induced abortions, sometimes called tele-abortions, and the shifting legality around them in the UK and in the US. Yeah, and I, I have to admit that when um, you suggested this, this topic, and it was just like tele-abortions, I had no idea what it was. I thought, like, is people calling? Are people calling, like, robo-calling? <laughs> boop, 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 boop. Hello, 1-800-ABORTION. Yes. It is it's not like, that. <laughs> that, like, a drone comes to your house and, like, I mean, the, in the future, who knows? But <laughs> Who knows? No, uh, a teleabortion or different facets of pill and abortions. Although, I like the idea of calling a robot and them coming to your house and having it that way. But <laughs> here is what a pill-induced abortion is. So according to Planned Parenthood, quote, abortion pill is the popular name for using two different medicines to end pregnancy, mythopristone and misoprostol. Your doctor or nurse will give you the first pill, milpristone, at the clinic. Pregnancy needs a hormone called progesterone to grow normally. Mythopristone blocks your body's own progesterone. You'll also get some antibiotics. The abortion pill is very effective. For people who are eight weeks pregnant or less, it works about 98 of 100 times. For eight to nine weeks pregnant, it works about 96 of 100 times. For nine to 10 weeks, it works about 91 to 93 out of 100 times. So the earlier you take it, the more effective it is. Exactly. Now, home abortions were introduced in Scotland and Wales last year. Now, the UK government has said that this will be legalized in England before the end of the year. According to the latest figures from Scotland, Eight out of 10 women are now choosing to take the final pill at home instead of in a clinic, with the Department of Health saying that they were monitoring this new evidence. Eight out of 10, that's a lot. It is a lot. Really, this whole debate seems to come down to personal preference and giving people the option of doing whatever feels right. I know for me, I'm a kind of person who might want to take this second pill with a doctor there. Um, but not everybody is like that. It really, I, I can understand why so many women are opting to do this at, in the privacy and the comfort of their own home as opposed to with a doctor in a clinic where they have to then figure out how they're going to get home from there. And really, that, that is the crux of why this is such a big deal. So basically, when you're having an early medical abortion, you're given these two pills roughly two days apart, and it's that second pill that triggers the abortion. Right now, women in England have to take this pill in a, in a physically in a clinic under the direct supervision of a doctor. So a doctor or a medical professional has to watch you put it in your mouth. And then, you know, you get on the train, you get in your car, whatever, however you're getting home, you go home and the body does its thing at home. Now, to be clear, this process has been proven to be more or less relatively safe, but that doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable. People who are taking this pill often experience symptoms like pain, nausea, vomiting, and bleeding. And, you know, for a lot of folks, you want to be at home, in bed, or wherever, wherever is comfortable for you to do this. You don't want to be in the back of a cab, on a subway, on a train, um, bleeding and experiencing the symptoms of this abortion from this pill that you were forced to take at some place other than your bed, you know? Yeah, I mean... 
Yes. I, I feel like that is something that you would want to do somewhere that you're more comfortable. Um, but I can see if you're worried about it that maybe you would want to be in a clinic. But um, either way, I think eventually your goal is to get home and sort of deal with this. Exactly. I might want to do this in a clinic, but I think that's what it really comes down to is personal choice. We shouldn't be saying you have to do it in a clinic if that's not where you feel comfortable. You know, I can understand the inclination because it's about safety and this and that. But so many of these, as as we know, so many of these decisions purport to be about keeping women safe, but they're really about taking away women's choices. And we should be giving women more choices. We should be giving women the freedom to decide what makes their own body feel safe and comfortable when they're going through a process that's going to be painful and that might be unpleasant. And we shouldn't be saying there's only one right way to do this because that's just not, that's not what we should be doing. And so I think this is one of those situations that we talked about in our episode on benevolent sexism where it's under this guise of protecting women, but really it's about taking away choice. And they're doing it for reasons that are not grounded in medical science. Yeah, and for women that don't live anywhere near a clinic that does abortions, this could be huge. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. According to official government figures, about 180,000 abortions occur each year in England, with four in every five being a medical abortion. People can start experiencing the abortion in as soon as 30 minutes, which for some means experiencing symptoms while on public transportation or in a cab home, which is not ideal at all. Not ideal. Um, That's what happened to Claudia Craig, a 23-year-old women's rights campaigner and activist. After she made the decision to terminate her pregnancy at seven weeks last year, she was forced to go through the trauma of starting to bleed on her way home from the hospital in the back of a stranger's taxi cab. Uh, Here's how she describes it. It was the shock of it all that was a bit scary and the not quite making it into the into the bathroom and onto the toilets was really unfortunate. It would have been nice if that could have been avoided. The whole way through, you're made to feel like you're doing something that isn't quite right. There's no reason for that. There is no reason for that kind of uncomfortable, unpleasant experience, you know, you might already be feeling a lot of feelings after getting an abortion. And and it's like, why make that experience? Like, people deserve to have medical procedures of all kinds be as comfortable as they can be. You know, if you're getting a medical procedure, whether it's an abortion or a tooth pulled, odds are you're going to be anxious, you're going to be nervous, you're going to have a lot of feelings. Medical procedures should be done in a ways that make people feel more at ease, not less at ease. And I can't think of anything less comfortable than bleeding in a stranger's cab just trying to get home. (laughs) It's up there for sure. And because you might feel that anxiety after taking the pill, the discomfort could be heightened. Jane Dixon, a consultant in sexual and reproductive health care at Anna and Bevan University Health Board, she believes the second pill could be taken by women at home. She says, The pain and discomfort experienced are equivalent to a natural miscarriage, but pain sensations can be heightened by anxiety and uncertainty. This is why being able to manage the experience yourself when and where you want with the emotional support you want is likely to improve women's perceptions of pain. And I have to point out the decision that England made to let people take this second pill at home wasn't just a a choice or a, a, a ruling. 
Like most kinds of social progress, the change in England was the result of campaigners and advocates making a lot of noise and speaking up about this issue. The British Pregnancy Advisory Service, a UK abortion provider, has long been campaigning and advocating for home abortions to be legalized. Claire Murphy, its Director of External Affairs, told The Sun, there is no clinical reason to deny women the option of using this medication at home. It is safe and effective to do so, which means the only grounds for refusing are political. And I, I think she's completely right that, you know, the medical, we should be making rules and regulations along medical science. And if medical science says there is no reason why you can't take this pill at home, it is safe, it's effective, might make you more comfortable, do it. And the law saying, no, do it in a clinic and bleed out in a taxi cab. And I think, she, I think she's exactly right that if it's not grounded in medical science, then it must be political, it must be social. What other explanation could there be? Yeah, the World Health Organization figures reveal that administering the second pill at home has no adverse effects on the outcome of a termination. Between 91 and 98% of pregnancies were successfully terminated when it was administered at home. Now, because this law was preventing women in England from taking the second pill at home, some people were resorting to illegally buying it online and taking it at home there. Um, over the past three years, drug enforcement officers have seized almost 10,000 sets of abortion pills on their way to addresses in Britain. The Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, or the MHRA, told the BBC. Kate Guthrie works for the service WomenOnWeb.org, which helps women who want to buy the tablets online, and told the BBC that 2,212 women had contacted her asking for abortion pills in the past 18 months. For four months, Women on Web tracked how many women were illegally asking for these pills for four months. And of the 180 women who responded during that four-month time, about half said they had difficulty accessing the NHS abortion services. Other reasons they gave for trying to get these pills illegally were things like distance and waiting times and other things like just not being able to get childcare or time off work. For instance, Linda, not her real name, a 31-year-old living in Scotland said, I already have three kids and I am a single working mom. I do not have the funds to pay for the childcare while I'll be in the hospital. I really need to do this in my own home. Another 30% of women said they were worried their abortion might not be kept confidential and 18% wanted to keep their abortion a secret from a violent partner or controlling family member. So there's a lot of reasons why, besides comfort, that people would want to do this at home, as this illustrates. And um, I do think that if it's medically safe, it should be available for women who want to go that way. Um, and we do have some, a little bit of ripple ripple effects out to the United States that we're going to talk about of teleabortion. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, in the United States, at-home abortions um, are a new battlefield especially with the prospect of an increasingly conservative Supreme Court and uncertainty around Roe v. Wade, which is why many turn to teleabortion. That's right. Abortion via telemedicine has been available in the United States since 2008, when the first formal program began in Iowa. So how this works, like what makes this the tele part of a teleabortion? 
A patient in one clinic confers via video conference with a doctor in another clinic and then receives abortion pills. Now, this satisfies a federal requirement that the doctor, quote, dispense the pill to a patient in a clinic, office, or hospital. Video conferencing is also a useful way to serve women in remote or rural areas, but opponents have responded quickly, prohibiting abortion via telemedicine in 20 states since 2011. In one of those states, Iowa, the state Supreme Court reversed the ban. Yeah, and as I've mentioned before on the show, I think, I grew up in a really small town, and I remember the big deal it was when there was talk of our hospital closing because there were no other... There were no other closer hospitals, I mean, that were, like, reasonably close. And I I hear so often about, like, medical deserts where there's nothing, nothing nearby. And I think that video conferencing and these, these other ways that we can connect to healthcare and maybe get an abortion pill, it can be extremely useful. Definitely. I used to work for a news organization called Rewire News, and they've been doing a lot of interesting um, work around reproductive health care, especially in places like the Ozarks um, and and Appalachia. And honestly, we should do a whole episode about this, but the different alternative ways of getting health care to people who need it, one, I'm shocked at the resilience that that people have gone to get health care. There's things like vans that will drive to you to give you basic services. Um, there's video conferencing. But two, it just reminds us that our, our medical landscape is so severely lacking in so many places. And a lot of times, these places that you just described, these rural communities, places like the Ozarks, Appalachia, that's where the need is greatest. And so it, just, it, it boggles the mind. I'm, I'm uh, full disclosure, I am uh, recording this in New, York, in New York City right now. And I'm going on a trip tomorrow, and I was able to walk out of my hotel in New York, and there were four urgent care clinics on the street. So it was like I was looking at three of them. I went into one, I waited for 10 minutes, and I was out, right? Like, when you compare that to the experience of someone who is living in the Ozarks or a rural community, I mean, it's just, it it boggles the mind, you know? And everybody needs healthcare. Everybody gets sick. Everybody needs, needs care at some time. But just the inability of folks to access really basic services, it's, it's really, it's, it's sad. It's, it's a failure on the part of our country. Yeah. I, I mean, people were afraid when the, the hospital possibly was going to shut down. People were really, I could just hear in their voice the anxiety of what would we do if that happened. I have this issue, I have that issue. Yeah. I can't afford, or I, I don't have the time, I can't afford to like drive this far to the next hospital. Yeah, there are places in the United States where if you want to get an abortion, the, you have to travel so far just to get to clinics because they're shutting down. And again, when we have these places where, like you said, Annie, just getting access to healthcare is such a tough thing, we should be looking at ways to make that less tough. And so you might be thinking, well, then why don't they just make the abortion pill that you can get it over the counter if, if, if it's so hard. Like, why? maybe they should deregulate it where people can get access to it if it's safe and it's something people need. But that's not what we're doing. We're doing the opposite. Yeah, a lawsuit filed last year argues medication abortion should be offered by prescription at the local drugstore 
and this could amount to a seismic shift in abortion access. Kauai Dr. Graham Chelius, who bought the suit with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, and several healthcare associations called the restriction medically unnecessary and burdensome. Because Kauai lacks a single abortion clinic, Chelius said he'd like to stock mifepristone, but cannot because of the FDA restriction. Quote, So if one of my patients wants to end her pregnancy, she has to fly to a different island 150 miles away to get this care. In the United States, the FDA regulates Mifeprex under a set of rules called Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, REMS. Because of these mandates, only healthcare providers who have pre-registered with the manufacturer of Mifeprex and stock the abortion pill in their healthcare facility may hand patients the medication. In a paper titled 16 Years of Overregulation, Time to Unburden Milfaprex, published in April in the New England Journal of Medicine, leading clinicians and public health experts argue that the FDA restriction was medically unnecessary. And ACLU attorneys noted that leading medical groups, including the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, support making the pill available by prescription at pharmacies. Quote, overwhelming medical experience and decades of clinical experience show medication abortion to be safe and effective method to end a pregnancy, Dr. Paul Blumenthal, director of the gynecology service at Stanford University, said in a statement. There is simply no medical justification for these restrictions, and they create needless and harmful burdens for women seeking this care. Um, again, but that, that sounds so much like what's going on, what was going on in England, where it's clear from medical professionals and medical research that there is not a reason for creating more barriers and more rules around how people can get access to this care in the way that is right for them. If we understand that some folks are in situations where there aren't a ton of clinics, or maybe you're just busy and you can't get to a clinic, we should be making access to this care easier. And these doctors agree, but we're not doing that. Nope. And because of that, people have resorted to buying the pills online just like they do in the UK. And we're going to talk more about that when we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, yeah, here in the United States, just like in the United Kingdom... Women are trying to get these pills by buying them online. Olga Kazan at The Atlantic did a really comprehensive piece back in July called Illegal Abortion Will Mean Abortion by Mail that summarized a lot of the current climate around obtaining abortion pills online. Yeah, the piece is fascinating, and I cannot recommend that folks read it enough. We'll link out to it in the show notes, but it's it's. Really, really interesting in terms of where we're at with abortion by pill and where we're going. So the reasons why women in the United States might be looking to get the pill online are pretty much what you might expect and are very similar to what's going on in the UK. Cost, restrictive laws, and personal preference. Abigail Keen, an assistant professor of public affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, conducted interviews with 32 people from 20 states who sought out abortion pills online for a study called Why U.S. Residents Seek Abortion Medication Online. She found that women turned to mail-order abortions because a clinic-based abortion was too expensive or because state restrictions around abortion, like waiting periods and ultrasound laws, were too onerous. And some just preferred the privacy and convenience of doing their own abortion at home. 
But as you might imagine, buying pills online, especially if there's kind of this <laughs> aura of secrecy around it, um, can be a little tricky. It can be a bit of a risk. You don't know what you're going to get is what yeah. I'm trying to say. I yeah, think. <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever bought like an outfit from one of those very cheap but very suspicious-looking websites online where it's like a picture of Khloe Kardashian looking amazing in a dress, and that same dress is $5, and then you buy it. I've had that experience. Mine was uh, pleather leggings that did not look anything like what what I was promised. If you've ever had that experience, as I'm sure some of you have, buying abortion pills online can be very similar. Um, This report talked about how you know, the websites are often riddled with typos. The transactions don't seem very trustworthy. And this is not an experience that sort of, you know, inspires confidence in your abortion. No, I have to say one one thing that I immediately gets me, like raises my, my haunches. It's like my spidey sense, that's it. Um, is it like typos and font choice and any kind of like... You might want to keep this a secret, like any sort of thing like that. I'm a little on edge, a little suspicious. I'm going to say I'm probably not the only one. There was a study published earlier this year called Exploring the Feasibility of Obtaining Mifepristone and Misoprostol from the Internet. Elizabeth Raymond, a senior medical associate at the research organization Gynuity, googled phrases like, buy abortion pills online, which... It seems like a pretty good phrase to type in for step one. The researchers ended up ordering 18 of the pill combinations from 16 different websites, none of which required a prescription. The pills came from India, where there is a large generic drug industry. Shipments cost between $110 to $360, and the packages took between three days and three weeks to arrive. Two buyers received... Troubling communications from product vendors. One warned about the legality of purchasing online. Quote, Please do not share this info with any other side because investigation team is searching the details for this type of medicine. And in the second case, the vendor complained that he was unable to get payment from the online payment platform and threatened to withhold shipment until the buyer paid another way. After some convincing, he finally sent the product... In addition, one buyer who paid with Western Union received two fraud alert calls, one from Western Union advising against purchasing pharmaceuticals online and another from her credit card company. Raymond also noted that some of the blister packs of pills arrived broken. She says this might be due to the fact that the shippers are afraid that custom service would be able to feel through the packaging and see that there are pills in there, so they crushed the blister pack, which if you're trying to get medicine... I mean, it's a little worrying. It's a little troublesome. Although the mifepristone pills contain the expected amount of medications, most of the pills contained less than the labeled dose. Now, they might still work, even at a lower dose, she says. But what's more, none of the pills came with any instructions for how to use them. So this experience does not seem like one that is necessarily on the up and up, we'll say. But it is an experience that people in the United States turn to. Yeah, and um, women can be arrested for trying to end pregnancies outside of a medical capacity. The SIA legal team, a group of lawyers who specialize in women who induce their own abortions, knows of 21 people who have been arrested or prosecuted 
for ending their pregnancies outside a medical setting or for helping someone else to do it. It might be an undercount since the organization relies on news reports to track these cases. The charges brought against women who self-abort can range from child abuse to the abuse of a corpse to a failure to report a death, says Jill Adams. She is SIA's chief strategist. So what's interesting is none of these women were actually prosecuted simply for the act of buying abortion pills specifically. But Adams points out that buying pills online and even Googling things like buy abortion pills can leave a paper trail that is then used as evidence in these cases. In seven states, self-induced abortion is illegal. And you might have heard in 2015, a woman in Indiana named Pervy Patel was sentenced to 20 years in prison for feticide after she allegedly used abortion pills she ordered online. Prosecutors claimed her fetus had been born alive and she allowed it to die. Her conviction was later overturned in an appeal. So we can kind of get a sense that this is a desperate situation for a lot of people out there. I mean, people don't just turn to these fishy online websites that could, you know, get you arrested for no reason, for fun. This is clearly a very, very desperate situation for a lot of folks out there. And yeah, I think that's why it's sort of important to get a lay of the land in terms of where where we're at with this issue. In the United States, as it seems like we are getting closer and closer and closer to a more conservative Supreme Court, if Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed, it's not impossible that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. You know, we could be in a very, very different landscape when it comes to reproductive justice and reproductive freedom and reproductive access um, very soon. So it's important to understand sort of where we're at and where we could be on this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to, I mean, if we're making it where women are are seeking out these illegal pills because other options are closed to them or because they are afraid that they they will be closed to them. There's just a lot of things that this should get us thinking about and talking about and things that we could improve so that this isn't happening. That what is already a difficult medical experience, medical choice, um, doesn't have to be more difficult. That's really the thing that gets me, is that any medical procedure is kind of a drag. We should not be making it more difficult to access, less comfortable. We should only be regulating things that are, you know, medically sound based on medical information, not anything else. And I just, people deserve to have their medical procedures, whether it's an abortion or an appendectomy, people deserve to have them with dignity and in comfort. Agreed, agreed. We would love to hear from from folks in the UK about their experience if they have, if they have any insights or thoughts on that. And speaking of hearing from listeners, it's time for listener mail. Debbie wrote, I'm a service engineer for a high-end nanotechnology company, and my job has me on the road literally every day. I'm home every other weekend most of the time and spend more time in airports than I do in my own house. I travel domestically as well as internationally and typically alone, which I love. The question I get most often from friends and family who think I'm crazy is, but how do you eat? Do you eat at restaurants? Alone? Insert horrified face here. Yes, I eat food. Sometimes I eat food in restaurants. And yes, I eat food in restaurants alone. 
I don't get why this is such a huge hang-up for people. You know what you get when you're eating alone? Whatever you damn well please. And that's in all caps. <laughs> I want to eat the same Chinese takeaway four days in a row. I'm going to eat those delicious spring rolls four days in a row. If I want to go out for a fancy dinner, I get to pick the bottle of wine that I really want, not share the best bites of food with anyone, and have a wonderful evening chatting with the staff and enjoying a great view of whatever city I'm in. I find that once you get over yourself and realize that no one is judging you, and if they are, they have way too much time and energy on their hands, eating out alone is really a relaxing experience. There's something so wonderfully luxurious about sitting alone in a lovely restaurant, drinking a glass of wine, snacking on tapas, and not worrying about keeping up a conversation or looking sexy while eating. You can take as long as you want to finish your meal, order nothing but espresso and dessert, and just enjoy where you are. Dining alone is my time to unwind after a crazy week, and I love it. Yes, there are plenty of hassles that come with traveling while female. Don't get me started on the Middle East. But as long as you go into it with the right mindset, solo travel is safe and empowering experience that I encourage every woman to undertake. I, I love this because I get that all the time too, um, eating alone as if what is wrong with you? How can you do it? And I actually remember when um, there was this big kerfuffle of like, uh, I don't know, articles coming out about millennials are eating alone. What is going on? Society's ending. <laughs> um, but it, it can be. It can be a really lovely and relaxing experience. Sometimes it's hard to get over that first initial like table for one. Um, but I I actually had a wonderful experience with this recently that turned into not eating alone. <laughs> But because I, I was sitting alone, people came and sat with me that I'd never met and never would have talked to in my life, and it it worked out wonderfully. So you never know, um, but it can be really wonderful experience. Yeah, I, I our lives. Thank you for writing in. Our, our lives sound very similar. Um, I have to travel domestically quite a bit for just for work stuff. So I'm often in a tr- on a train or on a plane, and so I'm often in new cities, often eating alone. And you really, you, like you said, like the, after the initial sort of whatever anxiety you feel about it, you really get used to it and it's quite a lovely experience. You know, I, I, I a lot of my good friends are work in the restaurant industry because I so often eat alone and it's like you make friends and blah, blah, blah. Um, I really enjoy it too. Honestly, some of the letters that we got, it makes me think that we should do an entire episode on just women alone, you know, Traveling alone, eating alone. What are other things people do alone? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that people think, that's weird. Yeah, I mean, I think that so many women wrote in about doing things that society says that you should do with a partner alone. And I think, I think there is something like going to the movies alone, which, I, which is like my favorite activity in the yeah, world. I do it's that like, all oh the time. my God, I am, I am in heaven. Not like my version, my, if I have no plans on a weekend, my version of heaven is to pick two, we- either two like weird movies that no one would ever want to see except for me. And maybe that's, maybe that's Shoah, like a 10-hour documentary about the Holocaust. Maybe that's Mamma Mia 2, like, um, you know, it could, be, it could be anything. But just going to see a movie, sneaking in my candy, and just like being in heaven, not having to look at my partner and being like, oh my God, I dragged them to this and they hate it and they hate me and this is awkward and this is a bad day, blah, blah, blah. Like being free of all of that and just like being in a movie alone, 
liking it or not liking it is like I'm in like I'm, I'm in heaven. It's my it's my happy place. But I do think there is something around doing these things that we, especially women, have been conditioned for so long that you do them with a romantic partner, and if you do them alone, you're a freak. People are reclaiming that and saying, actually, I love eating alone. Actually, I love traveling alone. Actually, I love going to the movies alone. Actually, I love doing sports alone, you know? Yeah, for sure. We're we're definitely moving that way. And it has been interesting because it is sort of younger folks doing it more, I think. Or at least that was what the starting wave was. And so when those when I was sitting eating alone recently, the people that came and sat with me were these older gentlemen who could not fathom <laughs> he would choose to eat alone. But we actually we had a great conversation from that and um I really it was a great experience. It was a great experience. Yeah, I mean I do think that if you look at the numbers, we are getting we are marrying less and less and things like things that used to be markers of kind of being successful adults, marriage, car ownership, home ownership, we are sort of less tethered to those things. And so I think that has something to do with it. It's the shifting, the shifting priorities of young people and that young people are much more likely to prioritize experiences over things. And so, you know, we would value like a lavish trip more than, you know, say, owning a BMW. And I think, I, think it's just a, I think it's just a reimagining of how we live our lives. And it actually relates to our next letter. Samantha wrote, I just listened to the podcast about solo traveling. I was in France at the same time as you. It was really exciting seeing your Instagram post as I was finishing up my first solo journey and my first time abroad. I spent two half weeks in Switzerland and then two weeks in South France solo before meeting my parents in Paris. It definitely felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that passed me by before for many reasons, and I'm really glad I finally got to do it. I enjoyed listening to the podcast about how you and Annie talked about society not being okay with women traveling solo. I've done some internship stuff around the U.S., so a lot of my family members and family friends assumed that I was doing another internship thing or at least going with a friend. When I responded to the, who are you going with, question with the words, myself, I always got a confused look and maybe the words, you're braver than I am. While flattering, I also feel conflicted about this kind of reaction. I'm not entirely sure why it bothered me, although it is in part because I was always labeled as a shy kid. And despite me growing up, it seems like everyone is surprised when I do something adventurous. I also want to say, in a cheesy way, I do feel like this trip changed me too. I feel more confident, particularly in social situations, and more excited about future possibilities to try new things, meet new people, and see new places. I'm currently in my second year of working toward a PhD in math, and I'm hoping this new confidence will stick with me through the challenges I face this semester. Um, If it sounds like I'm smiling my head off while I'm reading this letter, it's because I am. Um, Samantha, thank you so much for writing in. It's so cool that we were in France together alone at the same time. Um, It's almost like we were there together, but, you know, apart. yeah, I mean, solo travel, I completely agree that it, it, it did make me feel more confident. And I'm, I love the idea of you sort of shirking this label of like, oh, you're just a shy, sweet kid. And saying, no, I can, I can do adventurous things. I can be by myself. I can talk to strangers in Paris and make friends with them. And I, I really, really hope that you bring that good energy into your studies. It, it sounds like you're kind of poised to really tap into whatever that, that thing that made you feel so confident and good on your own in France 
It sounds like you're poised to bring that back to your to your real life and to your work as a PhD student. By the way, PhD in math, very rad. Um, yes. Yeah, this is this letter just makes me very happy. <laughs> yes. Um, I've gotten the like you're braver than I am response too. And I I think the reason for me that it's it's annoying in a weird way because you it's almost like dismissive as if it just comes more naturally to you. I don't know. I, I appreciate like the thought behind it, but I, I understand the w- kind of weirdness there of like, I guess, <laughs> I guess. But thanks to, to both of them for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. And thanks to our producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you.